Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Last week I mentioned that the tone of the Easter has shifted a little bit. The readings that the church has chosen for these remaining weeks of Easter are intended to speak more directly to our experience after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. In a lot of ways, the things that Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room during the institution of the Lord's Supper are really directed at the church's ongoing life after his departure, before his return at the end of all things. And today, then, Jesus focuses our attention on the work of the Holy Spirit. He starts off by saying this, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus flips the script a little bit on us and the disciples here. He says that there is a rebuke that is coming for us for our sorrow and their, dis- their sorrow at his physical departure. Now, when he says this, he does say that it's for our advantage that he's going away. So the fact that the disciples are overcome at Jesus' announcement that he is going away, that he's going to the Father, is telling us and, and telling Jesus that their main problem is they're not actually trusting and listening to his word. Now, we ought to be careful here, because sorrow in itself is not a sin. You're not sinning when you're grieving the loss of your husband or someone else that you love. Jesus, after all, wept at the funeral of his dear friend Lazarus. But there is such a thing as wallowing too much in your sorrow to the point that you can't even receive the words of Jesus. Thomas Aquinas, who was a medieval theologian before the Reformation, rightly calls sorrow a form of anxiety. That is, an undue concern about what is to come in the future. You'll recall that Jesus uses this language on the Sermon on the Mount when he tells us not to be anxious about things like food, drink, clothing, those things that we need for our basic day-to-day living. In the case of today's text, Jesus is rebuking the undue sorrow of the disciples that they have about his physical leaving. I mentioned this last week, this warning us not to play the part of a modern-day Mary or Martha crying out, Lord, if you'd just been here, this wouldn't have happened. In effect, when we cry out that way, we end up blaming God for whatever trouble that we experience in this life rather than calling upon him as he would have us do so, seeking for him in our time of need. So what does Jesus say here? What is the solution? He goes on. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When we have this 
undue anxiety or sorrow about what's going on around us in the world, not only are we sort of blaming Jesus for not being here the way that he was in the Bible, but we also act like the Holy Spirit, whom he has sent to be in us by virtue of our baptism, the third person of the most holy trinity, by the way, we act as if he is some sort of consolation prize given to us because, well, we just weren't fortunate enough to be alive during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. Sorry about your luck. You came second, so you get a toaster. Again, Jesus says that his not being here in the same way that he is in the New Testament is for our advantage. In other words, this is a win for us. Leaving aside what Jesus says in the rest of this text, just consider how different the disciples were before Pentecost and then after Pentecost. Even in the end of the Gospels and in the beginning of Acts, Jesus is still having to rebuke them for their unbelief and thinking that he's about to set up some earthly reign and kick out the Roman soldiers and put Israel back on the map as it was in the days of David and Solomon and all of those guys of the ancient kingdom. But then after the Holy Spirit comes, after Pentecost, these same men gladly suffer torture and gladly suffer death and do not shrink from the confession of Jesus as Lord. But Jesus has a more practical reason for why his departure and coming why his departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit are actually good for us. Why they are for our advantage. He says three things and we'll take them one at a time. First, he says he will convict the world, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So concerning sin, he says, because they do not believe in me. Now at first, this may seem like Jesus is saying this as a judgment against unbelief. But the context of Jesus preparing the disciples for the coming of the Holy Spirit really ought to make us think that he's going down a different path here than what we may initially think. That Greek word that stands behind the word convict also helps us in this because that word tells us that the Holy Spirit's job is not to convict you as in to say you're guilty, but his work is given to create faith when and where he pleases. That's a big deal for us, dear saints. That means that you can lay down that load that you've been carrying around when it comes to your loved ones and neighbors who don't believe in Jesus. God certainly wants us to call, uh, or God wants us to witness to our neighbors, but he's the only one that is responsible for actually doing the saving. The hard part is in knowing that this happens on the Holy Spirit's timetable and not necessarily on ours. All of us have someone that we know and love, that we've spoken the gospel to, and we hope that they come around in saving faith. But here, Jesus gives us 
the great promise that the Holy Spirit will work through his word, even when you speak it, even when you don't speak it with eloquence and clarity. And he will use that word to bring others to faith when and where he pleases. The second thing Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will do is convict the world concerning righteousness. And he says this is because he is going to the Father and we will see him no longer. While faith is vital for the Christian life, what faith receives from God is the lifeblood of the Christian church. It is by faith that we receive the righteousness that Jesus comes to give. In Matthew 5, we've been talking about this in Sunday Bible class, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Righteousness is what we lack that bars us from heaven. And on our own, we're simply left to try to work up this righteousness in ourselves, like the Pharisees did by trying to live a perfect life before God. But the Pharisees didn't realize that the law was more than a don't do this, but do that kind of deal. It also reaches down into the depths of our hearts and souls. This is why Jesus says that it is uh, a lack of righteousness, even when we are angry with our brother. He says that is murder. When we look at another woman with a lustful intent, he says that is adultery. The law reaches all the way down into our very being. It's more than what we do with just our hands or say with our words, but it is also there to govern the attitudes of our hearts. But the Holy Spirit, who creates faith by his word and sacraments, comes to give us this righteousness of Jesus. St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There at the cross, Jesus took on our sin, and the Spirit reveals that to us, so that in so doing, Jesus then holds out his righteousness to us. So then, when Paul writes in Romans 3, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We get that righteousness from Jesus by our faith in him. Even though we don't see Jesus in the same way that the disciples saw him there in the upper room, the Holy Spirit brings his righteousness to us today. And this righteousness, which is received by faith and is given to us through the Holy Spirit's work, comes to us in the Word and in the sacraments. People loved by God, this is why I so often tell you to read your Bibles and to run to the sacrament. This is how the Holy Spirit comforts us and strengthens us for life in this world. In these things, the Spirit takes what belongs to Jesus 
And in this case, his righteousness. He takes his righteousness and he declares it to you. He says that it is yours. You have the righteousness of Jesus. Finally, Jesus says the Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment. And this he says because the ruler of this world is judged. We usually think of judgment as a fearful thing. But again, Jesus flips the script on us. The ruler of this world, Satan, is the one who is judged. He is found guilty, and he has been sentenced to be bound in chains in hell forevermore. He can no longer accuse you before the Father in heaven, because as Revelation tells us, he has been driven out of the presence of God, driven out of heaven, and cast down by the very blood of Jesus. But this also means that he cannot convict you of sin in your conscience either. So when the devil comes whispering in your ear, are your sins really forgiven before? He can't forgive that sin. Your sins are too bad. When the devil comes whispering in your ear these things, take a cue here from Dr. Luther. He says, what of it? I know one who has suffered and made payment for my sins. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. The world has certainly put us in a strange position of making us feel like we're, we're constantly being pushed back away from the politer society because of our beliefs, that we're sort of a marginalized and odd people. Why should we claim to have a corner on the market of truth? Well, we can claim that because we have the one who is the truth incarnate. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Dear saints, when the world tells you that you're on the wrong side of history or that your belief are, are thousands of years old and they're written by men and they're hopelessly out of date, remember that this world is kept going by half-truths and outright lies, and the pretender ruler of this world has already been judged. Like a cornered and wounded animal, Satan is still dangerous now, but he knows that his time is short before his sentence is actually carried out. People loved by God. Christ's visible presence is not ours to glimpse at this time. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured into your hearts in the waters of your baptism, you have been given the gift of faith in the righteous one, in Jesus Christ. He has come to cover over all of your sins by his righteousness. He has come to cast down the ruler of this world and to take his throne. For even now, Jesus is at God's right hand, upending all of the plans of Satan and governing all things in heaven and on earth for your good. Alleluia! Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, 
Keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.